So we're now continuing to look at our lecture on mortal sin, and we're now looking at the second condition, full knowledge, and trying to think what this means. So we're on page three of our notes. And as I've said here, the key thing to grasp is the question of ignorance as our point of comparison. So if you are ignorant of, some, of whether it's a sin, um, generally speaking, that means you're not accountable for it. So it's not a mortal sin if you are ignorant. Though you can be ignorant and choose to be ignorant. Um, and then actually you might be responsible. Um, socially, a defi one definition of ignorance, um, one people sort of say, we're just being ignorant, aren't you? What they're really saying is you know what it's about, but you're just being deliberately doing what you uh, yes, so actually that isn't ignorance at all. It's, no, it uh, it's feigned ignorance, I think, in that context you're talking about. Let me read through the bullet points I've put through there. What full knowledge means? It means a lack of ignorance. First, you know what you are doing. And then I've quoted uh, the moral philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe in this regard. What it means is you've got to know what you're doing, not in the sense that what you are doing is mortal sin, but in the sense that what you are doing is putting poison in your husband's soup. Yes? So, you're putting poison in the soup. You're not thinking, I hereby reject God. You're not thinking, I hereby kill the life of grace in my soul. But you are thinking, I'm going to poison my husband. I know what I'm doing. This is knowledge in this category. So it's not knowledge in the sense, I know this is a rejection of God, but I know what I'm doing. I'm not ignorant of what I'm doing. Further down my list, so stating that you know it is a sin. So if you don't know it's a sin, um, then you are ignorant in a, a moral sense. You are ignorant, neither of the relevant facts, nor of the relevant moral laws. So, relevant facts. So if one of you today takes home my iPad, because you actually have an iPad mini as well, and you also have the exact same case, and you put it in your bag and you go home with it, thinking it's yours, you are ignorant of a fact. Yes? So, um, that might be very inconvenient for me, but it wouldn't therefore be a sin. So, ignorance of facts um, is a very relevant thing here. Ignorant of laws. So, we'll look at later in the course uh, the question of the natural law, but it's possible to be ignorant of a, a number of the Ten Commandments. So, theft. Um, according to Cicero, the ancient German tribes were ignorant that theft was a sin. They they didn't have a concept of private property. Um, so if you don't have a concept of private property, you can't have a concept of theft, therefore you are ignorant of a relevant law. <coughs> and you're ignorant, you can't have full knowledge. My next point there, you are not intentionally ignorant. Um, or you're not ignorant due to your own neglect. So the Catechism makes a distinction between vincible ignorance and invincible ignorance. 
Um, you may be blameworthy for acts you commit due to invincible ignorance. Invincible meaning it's conquerable. Invincible, you cannot conquer it. There's some ignorance that actually I can remove. And actually I have a duty to remove. Just my general daily living, I have a duty to know whether that is my iPad or somebody else's. I don't, you know, that that's just normal human existence. I should be looking to check, is that mine or is it someone else's? Um, and if I choose not to bother to check, actually that's morally problematic. That is going to be a sin of failing to find out what I should find out. So that it implies I'm actually quite happy to take it even if it doesn't belong to me. So what explains what full knowledge is, um, is I think easy, more easily seen when we think about the ignorance that would remove from knowledge. Now again, phrasing that in reverse, the second little section there on that page, full knowledge does not mean, it does not mean that you know you are in mortal sin. So I quoted there, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that a person cannot know whether he is in a state of mortal sin or not. Um, we'll look at that a bit more in a couple of pages. Uh, but I've quoted, um, in defence of that position, uh, St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So just because I'm okay with it and I think I'm okay doesn't mean I'm actually okay. So that's, in italics there, a person invincible ignorance may be ignorant of the fact he's in a state of mortal sin. That he is in a state of ignorance he could have overcome, that he's choosing not to overcome. He is somehow blinding himself to reality. He may be in mortal sin and not aware of it, but it's, it's his fault he's in that state. That's what we mean by invincible ignorance. Next point, and this is what I have said already. Full knowledge does not mean that you explicitly choose to reject God in this act. Otherwise, contempt for God would be the only mortal sin. So St. John Paul II says, A person therefore sins mortally, not only when his action comes from direct contempt for love of God and neighbour, but also when he consciously and freely, for whatever reason, chooses something which is seriously disordered. So I choose adultery, not explicitly thinking this act rejects God, but because I'm choosing adultery. And I know it's a sin, I'm not ignorant that it's a sin. And the act itself is of such gravity of matter that it disrupts that love of God and love of neighbour. And therefore it satisfies those conditions. Now, we might note there are many in our culture today whose um, moral upbringing is so um, deformed that there are all kinds of sins of the flesh they are completely ignorant of in terms of whether they're sinful or not. Um, and that therefore they are ignorant 
and not to blame for it. So someone mentioned pornography earlier. Well, um, most teenage boys growing up today are in their school classes encouraged to use pornography. They talk about appropriate use of pornography as if there is an appropriate use. So the, a teenage boy growing up today isn't going to automatically realize that that's a sin at all. Um, and therefore is unlikely to be blameworthy. They're not going to have full knowledge that it's a sin. Now, we might want to add to that, it is part of the natural law. Natural law meaning that it's naturally possible to know it. So even growing up in a deformed society, individuals within that will grasp the truth despite the society around them. But that many will be clouded. So we've looked at grave matter, we've looked at full knowledge. Any, before we think about consent, um, any thoughts further at this stage? When we're talking about the law, there's the legal system in which the community lives, and then there's God's law, which aren't necessarily same, same yes. So you could know that a particular um, action is contrary to civil law or criminal law, um, or you might not be aware of how that fits into God's law, and it would more likely the other way around. You could be um, aware that a particular act is contrary to God's law, but actually is permissible by the state or the justice system. Yes, I'm just thinking of an example where that would become morally problematic. So actually we have a general obligation to um, obey the laws of the state. The state is there to serve the common good. The state has the right to legislate, has the duty to legislate for the sake of the common good. We have a duty, generally speaking, to obey the state. Um, though not every law serves the common good truly identified. And an unjust law is, according to the Catechism, according to St. Augustine, an act of violence um, against the true order. Um, but I suppose that just the general point you're making is that the, these orders, when we use the law, what we're primarily concerned with in moral theology is, is God's law. Mark Rogers is a lawyer, and um, one of the questions they get asked as part of their training um, usually appears in some essay form is to do with the law and morality. And the general consensus is that the law is not concerned primarily with morality. It may have more outcomes and consequences, um, but uh, the law does not set out in its, in its intention to be moral. And that does depend on your theory of law. Uh, and in our modern Britain, the most dominant theory of law is the notion of law as a contract. That society and I come to a contractual agreement that these are the laws. Um, 
do agree it is consensus and it's ratified in Parliament and it comes through you know all those sorts of channels. Whereas the classic, 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 classic Catholic articulation of what is a law uh, is that it is an ordinance of reason to serve the common good um, and enacted by those who have the authority to serve the common good. So if it's not properly promulgated, it ceases to be a law. If it doesn't serve the common good, truly speaking, it's not actually a law either. Um, we will look at that later in the course, but again, I'm afraid not in great depth. Mm -hmm. um, an interesting point, though, because the law, under the law, ignorance is not a defence. Yeah. Uh, in civil law, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. I mean, it is tough, but, um, therefore, the church will say that, say they bring in exclusion zones on abortion clinics, uh, so it would be illegal to demonstrate, the church would say it was still right to do so. Well, actually, I think that's a separate question. Um, and that whether it is... Um, it might well be that abortion is evil, mm. but pro that doesn't automatically give you a right to protest about it at that place. That's a, a different question. Um, So I don't think you'd have an automatic duty to oppose that law in that context, um, automatically. Um, though, morally speaking, I wouldn't have qualms about breaking that law, and that the law is, is unjust, about an injustice um, on you know, multiple levels. Um, but we only should break the law of the land if our breaking of the law of the land isn't going to bring about a greater circumstantial evils, a package of evils. So civil disobedience brings with it all kinds of evils for society just because it is civil disobedience. So what you are opposing in an unjust law has to be serious enough in itself to merit that. Um, I feel pretty certain future generations when abortion is again illegal, we'll look back on us and say we didn't get that balance right and we were too tacit in just saying, oh, well, it's legal. Um, all right, let's move on. The question of consent. Um, now, different formulations that have indicated the top of that page, we're on page four now. Um, We'll say deliberate consent or complete consent. Um, the point is it's not just consent, but there has to be a fullness, a deliberateness about the consent. And that there are degrees of consent. Now the Catechism makes the point, which is the first thing I put on the page there, that being able to consent to sin is the flip side of being free to love. So there's a way of talking about all this that just kind of says, well, they're, they're just not, they're not free to choose. Well, actually, if you take that seriously, you're also saying they're not free to love. Uh, these are two sides of the same coin. Um, so we are free to choose sin. And if we weren't, we wouldn't be free to love. And we are free to love. This is what we believe about being made in the image and likeness of God and the whole thing that makes us different to the animals. 
So freedom of choice establishes the possibility of moral action. Yeah. If there isn't freedom of choice um, at a human level, then there isn't a moral action. Um, back to my notes here. How might full consent not be given? So what we're thinking is, when is there not consent or not full consent? Well, the Catechism, as I've quoted, says... The promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary and free character of the offence, as can external pressures or pathological disorders. So a mental illness will break down my capacity to consent on all kinds of levels. Um, but um, I've then given the example of a drug addict Concerning the difference, so we talked about virtue and vice last time. There's the difference between being vicious in a vice and being weak in incontinence. Um, and we think there's two categories with a drug addict. So the drug addict, he might be weak, he wants to say no, but he gives in. And his bad passions diminish his degree of consent. So he does consent. But his passions, his addiction, diminishes his degree of consent. Or he might be vicious. He wants to say yes and he does say yes. His passions work with his consent and increase its gravity. His evil deed ratifies his evil passion and confounds him in vice. He knows the whole package of life that goes through with being a drug addict and he chooses it. So there the passions work with his consent, not against it. Whereas there will be other drug addicts who are fighting it. Um, they see the whole package, they are wanting to resist, but their passions, their addiction, limit their degree of consent. I've said there in smaller bold print, i.e. the same external activity might be vicious or incontinent, might be mortal sin or venial sin, or possibly not even a free act at all. So the grave matter, we would think about the objective status of the sin. Here we're considering how you are engaging in it, your consent. And your passions can prevent you making a complete consent. So then, such as fear? Fear can, yes, fear is, is another category, but that can prevent you making a free choice. That said, you can, in a state of fear, um, do the right thing anyway. So, so, so the, the martyrs give us countless examples in a state of fear, before evil, they choose the good anyway. So it's not... Um, there's a type of fear which would be psychological and impair somebody's capacity even to think. Mm -hmm. And there somebody... You'd have some overlap of the, of the full knowledge uh, of somebody's grasping of what's before them because of the, the paralysis of fear. But not all fear causes that. There's a, there's a type of fear where actually we are still in control 
we are still able to choose, we can do the right thing, but we might choose in weakness not to. The, very high bar, the bar was set very high for Nuremberg trials for Nazis who were involved in the process of um, exterminating, the extermination of Jews and the Kennedy's people. And the defense was put that um, I was ordered to do it. And, and it, it was pretty obvious that people were frightened that if they didn't comply, they too could um, priest is, is not what is lawful ob- obedience but what is moral obedience yes um, and this came up in a very real sense that on the eve of the Gulf War yeah. when um, we were told by chapter of the then chapel of the fleet um, that they reassured us all they had sought from the Attorney General his, his understanding of the proposed action in Iraq that, they, that it was unlawful. And nobody said anything, although I was sitting there feeling uncomfortable, and I'm sure other people felt uncomfortable. And I said, well, I'm sorry, um, boss, but I'm a chaplain, not a lawyer. I need to be able to tell my people who guide them what is moral, not what is, not what is legal. So thanks for that. Yeah, it's okay to know it's legal, but is it moral, if you answer me? So All right. Thank you. Okay, we can come back to, to the question of consent here. Mm-hmm. Got a little section here considering the, the category, did you take pleasure in it? Um, so there's a, a phrase or a stereotype of that that somehow pictures a, a dirty old priest in the confessional asking a young girl, did you take pleasure in it? Um, now, actually, there is a very valid and useful way of looking at this question because pleasure is one of the stages so I've quoted here St. Francis de Sales, um, but there are numerous different formulations um, that say the same thing. So degrees of consent. Did you take pleasure in it? A lack of pleasure is usually a sign of a lack of consent. St. Francis de Sales describes a three-stage process in temptation. First, the temptation is conceived. Secondly, the person either takes pleasure in it or not. Third, the person either consents or not. Pleasure is the first step to consent. Uh, St. Francis de Sales notes further, pleasure can be either in the inferior bodily or the superior spiritual part of the soul. It's It's the pleasure in the mind, in the spiritual part that we're concerned with. 
You know, St. Jerome gives the example of an imprisoned male saint tied to a bed while a sensuous woman caresses him and so forth, seeking to corrupt him. Though his spirit refuses to consent in his spirit, his body will respond to her touch and there will be sensual pleasures. But constancy in spiritual distaste for what is occurring will be a sign of his lack of consent. And that's a pretty graphic image, but I think it, it shows up that distinction. That a physical, consent, a physical pleasure doesn't mean there's consent, but there must be this spiritual distaste that if it's consistently there, there isn't sin at all. Let me put another thought. Um, rejoicing in somebody's downfall. So, um, I see some brother in the priesthood in my diocese um, who's always doing well, always at the up and up path, and something crushing happens to him. If I take pleasure in that, um, this is a form of hatred. It's um, a German word for that. That's it. So, I should see an evil happen to somebody and recognise it as an evil. Um, hatred in me would want evil to come to somebody, even if I haven't caused it. So this taking pleasure in it is therefore a consenting to it um, in the form of hatred. Uh, briefly, before we stop for lunch, um, just some comments here about dreams um, in terms of consent. Uh, if our sins while awake influence our dreams, then St. Gregory says we are guilty for impure dreams. Uh, St. Francis de Sales elsewhere says, bad dreams voluntarily procured by the depraved thoughts of the day are in some sort sins inasmuch they are consequences and execution of the malice proceeding. On a somewhat related note, St. Augustine notes there's a type of consent <coughs> between dreaming and wakefulness. Um, there's obviously some kind of spectrum there but that, that, that's I think, worth noting. Lastly, in this category, uh, involuntary ejaculation and nocturnal emissions, for example, half asleep at night or in response to involuntary external stimuli. If one takes voluntary pleasure in an involuntary emission, then the taking pleasure makes it gravely sinful. Now, I'm going to do five minutes on the last page here, page five, um, a brief summary of an article of St. Thomas Aquinas on this question of being ignorant of the fact we're in mortal sin or not. So St. Thomas is saying, to put there in bold at the top, a person cannot know whether or not he's in a state of mortal sin. Um, and I've then given four points. First, we cannot feel grace, and thus we cannot feel whether or not we're in a state of grace. 
So grace is a supernatural thing. Therefore, by definition, I can't naturally sense it to know if I'm in a state of grace. Secondly, self-deception leads us to make inaccurate judgments about ourselves, which is a continual problem in the spiritual life, but that can manifest itself in this regard. So just because I don't think I'm in a state of mortal sin, well, self-deception's going to impair my ability to know that. Thirdly, this is a bit more technical, um, a person might perform an outwardly good act, but do it under an isolated, what are called actual grace, which doesn't flow from the possession of stable, sanctifying grace. Thus, the doing of a good deed does not prove that a person is in a state of grace. So, um, the scholastics distinguish all kinds of different graces. What you want is sanctifying grace, which if you have it is habitual within you. <coughs> but God prompts us with all kinds of things to get us into that state, prompts that are actual graces. They are real graces, but just because they are there doesn't mean you've engaged with them in such a way that they are stable in you, that you have stable, sanctifying grace. So just because you might see that actually I did feed that person who is in need, I did respond to an actual grace, but I didn't respond to it in a way that actually engaged me, in a way that left me in stable, sanctifying grace. So this is another reason why it's hard to look at ourselves and know with knowledge whether or not we're in a state of mortal sin. Because not all grace is sanctifying grace. It's all ordered towards it, but it isn't necessarily sanctifying grace. So when Jesus turns around and says that um, whatever you did for this and all these, you did it to me, and whatever you didn't do, if you didn't do it to me, then, then what that person did, which might be good or not good, didn't, didn't have any impact on sanctifying grace, so um, I'm not entirely sure of the application of that example in this situation. Okay. Um, so, cause it, we'd need to pull apart the different parts of that. Um, so, what do you know in terms of your knowledge in that situation? I don't know that I'm doing this for Christ. I do know that I'm doing this deed for this person in need. Yeah. So the Lord says that these people didn't know that it was him that they were either feeding or yeah. rejecting. But they didn't know that there was a real person in need before them. Um, so in these categories, that is the type of knowledge that is actually relevant. Enough knowledge to know that it's a sin. Yeah. That there is a person in need here, a person that love requires me to behave to. And by taking the action, surely there will be sanctifying grace imparted through um, it. It's ordered towards it. My point is we can kind of half engage with things rather than fully engage. That The full engagement with an actual grace will be, is ordered to sanctifying grace. But it doesn't automatically follow. The conclusion really is the fourth point here. 
nonetheless, St. Thomas says, a person might conjecture that he is in a state of grace if certain outward indications indicate it, such as delighting in God. He said, but this knowledge is imperfect. So you might think, actually, I sense within me a delight in the thought of God. It does imply that I do have grace, I do have love for him in me. But that's not a perfect knowledge, because we can deceive ourselves. We can want to be that person who loves God, who is a good person, uh, even if actually I'm wrapped up in selfishness or conceit or whatever else. Now in bold there, I've put the practical conclusion of all this. It follows that we should be cautious in assuming that we're not in a state of mortal sin, especially if we realise we've performed an act that's grave in its matter. So, um, I've committed adultery, or I've viewed pornography, or something. I, I've done something that is grave matter, and I tell myself, well, I didn't really know, or I didn't fully consent. That Actually, if I know it's grave matter, then I should be getting myself to confession because I'm not able to know whether or not I'm in a state of mortal sin. So get it resolved, get it forgiven. Don't say, well, I think it was only venial because uh, of one of these. If I, if I know it's grave. Could you say, if in doubt, confess? <laughs> I think that would be yeah, the same practical conclusion. But, it, but it's a practical conclusion that is pretty important and in reverse you will hear certainly in a certain generation people saying where's the effect of well I don't think it was a mortal sin therefore I'm not going to confession um, mm. and they are presuming that they can know themselves well enough to make that assessment and St Thomas's point would be actually you can't know yourself that well so if you do know it's great matter and get to confession. I had another thought about dreams. Yeah. Um, modern, um, it's like more or less accepted these days that dreams are working out in the subconscious of part of your life in some way. So the subconscious doesn't really come into uh, church's teaching, moral teaching. No, it doesn't, is I think. The, the, um, I think you put something of St. Augustine's point that there is a stage between being awake and being asleep. What responsibility we have for our subconscious. From a virtue ethics perspective, I'd say we form ourselves by our deeds. Therefore, there is an element of my subconscious that I am responsible for. I have caused it. Um, so I shouldn't just say, oh, it's subconscious, therefore it's not morally relevant. But we would also say, subconscious by definition, my will hasn't engaged with it in a way that makes it a question of sin. So something is sin when the will is involved. Well, I'm going to wrap things up here now. That's mortal and venial sin and the three conditions of mortal sin. And I'm going to stop for lunch. <laughs>